it was in Matthew chapter 16 that we find Jesus and his disciples on a retreat. They've gone to the area around Caesarea Philippi for some rest and relaxation. They've been on a long preaching mission. And while they were there, Jesus asked those men, he said, Who do men say that I am? And they replied and said, Well, some say thou art John the Baptist. Or some say Elias or Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he looked at them and he said, But who do you say that I am? And it was that big, impulsive fisherman named Simon Peter who said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And that's when Jesus said, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Flesh and blood did not reveal this unto you, but my Father which is in heaven. And I'm going to say to you, you're Peter. And on this rock, upon this bedrock truth that I am the Son of God, I will build my church, and the gates of death shall not prevail against it. So there in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18, we have the promise of Jesus Christ that He was going to build His church. The church that was going to belong to Him. And that's what I want us to talk about this morning. We've announced it for several weeks. We've had it posted on Facebook. That for the next several weeks we want to discuss this theme. Our overarching theme for this series of lessons that will be four, five, six, eight, ten, twelve, however many uh, it strings into. Our overarching theme for this series of lessons is entitled, The Misunderstood Church. And what I want us to deal with over the next few weeks is some common misunderstandings about the Church of Christ, to be sure. Over the years, there has been a lot of disinformation a lot of misinformation and a great deal of prejudice circulated around churches of Christ. And it seems more and more and more in this world that you and I live in that it becomes easier and easier and easier to be misunderstood. Misunderstandings are quite common. You can hardly make an announcement without someone misunderstanding. Many times on a Sunday after church, someone will come up to me and say, did you announce such and such? And I said, no, I announced this. Oh, well, I understood this. It reminds me of a story I once heard about a couple that wanted to be married at the conclusion of a worship service. They had met at church. All of their closest friends and associates were members of the church. And they wanted to just have their wedding ceremony right after services on a Sunday morning and the entire congregation to stay and witness as they said their vows to one another. They discussed it with the preacher. He was in agreement with the plan. And the date was set. And the appointed Sunday came and at the close of the service, they'd sung the invitation song. They had sung the closing song. They had had the benediction and the preacher said, would everyone please be seated? 
for a very special announcement and a very special event. And he announced then, he said, Would those desiring to be joined in holy matrimony please come forward? And if you will, I will join you in the bonds of matrimony as you say your vows. Thirteen women and three men came forward. Well, admittedly, that kind of a misunderstanding is somewhat humorous to us. And it doesn't amount to anything. But when people come to misunderstand the greatest institution in the world, when people come to misunderstand the church, then it becomes a very serious matter. Folks, the pages of history are red with the blood of those who were horribly persecuted by people that did not understand. Jesus our Lord is sometimes referred to as the misunderstood Christ. And I believe that to be true. He was misunderstood throughout His life and He was misunderstood even in His death. You recall the cross upon which Jesus died. And a story and an event from that cross that we talked about a few weeks ago because out of His terrible agony on the cross that day, Jesus cried, My God, my God, why hast Thou forsaken me? And the original it says, Eli, Eli, Laba, Sabachthani. It's in Matthew 27, verse 46. And it seemed that anyone would understand those very simple words. But we're told that some of the soldiers gathered around the cross thought that Jesus was calling for Elijah. There was another occasion when Jesus was speaking of the temple. He said, you destroy this temple and I'll build it back in three days. Jesus was talking about the resurrection of His body. But there were those there that thought He was talking about the literal temple in Jerusalem. When we think about that, when we think about Him being misunderstood on the cross, and we think about Jesus being misunderstood speaking of the temple, it should not surprise us to learn that the church is misunderstood today. It was misunderstood in the days of the apostles. Acts 28 and verse 22 tells us it was the sect everywhere spoken against. If those people in that far off day... <clears throat> had not misunderstood it, they would not have referred to it as a sect. But they misunderstood the nature. They misunderstood the mission. And they misunderstood the destiny of this great institution. Many of those same things, along with others, are misunderstood about the church in the 21st century. There are many in our own day and time who misunderstand the church. There are a lot of misconceptions that float around out there about the church of Christ. You see, for many modern churchgoers, all that matters in a church is that it is warm and welcoming. They want the service to bring them pleasure and they want the service to move them emotionally. It's their desire that the church be making an impact for good in their community. 
And for so many people in our world today, if a local church passes those three tests, the religious brand of that church, as well as its teaching, is largely irrelevant. And I want to say this morning emphatically, and yet I want to say it as kindly as I can and as lovingly as I can, that I believe that doctrine, I believe what is taught is something that still matters. For me, when it comes to choosing a church home, if the doctrine, if the teaching isn't right, then nothing else is relevant. When I believe that the teaching and the doctrine of the church is right, that is when I move on to other considerations. Things like, are they warm and welcoming? Things like, whether or not the worship is uplifting and edifying. Asking if they make a difference for good in their community. But if the teaching's not right, then none of those things are important. What is the church of Christ? Now let's understand something. I do not this morning presume to speak for every member of every church of Christ all over this nation. I do not pretend to speak and do not speak for every congregation that calls itself a church of Christ. I speak for myself. And for the church that meets at 110 Hurst Street in Center, Texas. And I want to emphasize that as much as I possibly can. We are not actually a denomination. You cannot go online and find the world headquarters for the churches of Christ. We have no headquarters on earth. And so no one, no one can represent the beliefs and practices of churches of Christ in any official way. Every congregation is autonomous. It governs itself and has no jurisdiction or authority over any other congregation. To be quite honest, churches of Christ are different from all other religious groups. Now please stay with me. That does not mean that we think we are more zealous than other religious groups. It doesn't mean that. It also does not mean that we think we're more passionate about serving God than other folks are. We don't believe either one of those things. Not for one bit. Not at all. And when I say that we're different, that does not mean that we consider ourselves to be more sincere, more devoted, more dedicated, or more passionate in our desire to obey God than other people are. We're not. Being different 
does not mean that we have more respect for the Bible as God's Word than other people do. It does not mean our motives are purer than the motives of other people. It also does not mean that we think we are more Christ-like in our thinking and actions than those that are in other church groups. We know none of those things are true. When we say that we're different, we're talking about the difference of a radical idea. We are a product of what is referred to as the Restoration Movement. I'm certain that most of you have heard at some point in your life of the Reformation or the Protestant Reformation or what's called sometimes the Great Reformation that swept through Europe in the 1500s. I'm also quite certain that you've heard of the man usually credited with starting the Reformation movement a man named Martin Luther. The Reformation is a term used to describe this movement, and you can read about it in all the history books. The Reformation is a term used to describe this movement because the goal of men like Martin Luther and others who were associated with him was to reform the Catholic establishment of their day and time. In the 1500s, Luther and others viewed it as corrupt, both morally and doctrinally. And because of this, Luther and his associates felt that it needed to be reformed. And the Reformation movement was a huge, huge step in the right direction. But it fell just a bit short of its ultimate goal. And what we seek to do is take that idea of reformation a step further. We embrace the idea of restoration and claim to be a part of the restoration movement. You see, our goal is to actually restore the church in our own day and time to the way the church was in the days of Jesus Christ. Our goal is to restore the beliefs and practices of the church as they're found in the New Testament. From time to time, you hear people say that they're looking for a church home. And they say that they're looking for a Bible-believing church. In other words, they're wanting to find a church that believes the Bible is literally God's Word to man. A church that believes the Bible is the ultimate authority for life. Well, that's what we are. We're a Bible-believing church. But we're not satisfied with just being a Bible-believing church. We're just as passionate about being churches that have restored the beliefs and the practices of the church in New Testament times. Restoration. Why? 
Why would we have this goal of restoration? Friends, restoration is a concept that is foundational to the Word of God. Go back through all the ages of time from Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden to Moses bringing down the Decalogue to Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount. God has always given His people instructions for life. It doesn't matter if we're talking about Israel or we're talking about the church in the New Testament. God has always told His people and instructed His people how they are to be organized and how they are to be governed. God has always instructed His people as to how they are to approach Him and how they are to worship Him. God has always told His people how they are to live morally and ethically. And there's another well-established fact. God has always demanded complete obedience. God does not tolerate men and women trifling with His Word. Remember over in 1 Samuel 15 when God told Saul to go down and utterly destroy the Amalekites? To not spare anything, and Saul spared Agag, the king, and the best of the sheep and the oxen. And he's coming along back on the road home, and he sees God's man Samuel off in the distance. And he says, Blessed be thou the Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And about that time, the sheep started bleeding, and the oxen started lowing. And Samuel, Saul says, Samuel says, well, what meaneth then the bleeding of the sheep and the lowing of the oxen I hear? And uh, Saul said, oh, well, uh, we, uh, the, the people spared them to offer a sacrifice to God. Samuel said, behold, to obey is better than to sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. And then there's that sad case over in the book of Acts of Ananias and Sapphira who had a plot of land, they sold it and they laid the money, part of the money at the apostles' feet, but then they said, oh, this is every bit that we got. And they were struck dead because they had lied to the Holy Spirit. They weren't struck dead because they didn't give all of it. They were struck dead because they lied to God. God doesn't tolerate men trifling with His Word. Here's what Jesus said in Matthew 7. It's a part of that beautiful Sermon on the Mount. Beginning in verse 21 of Matthew 7, Jesus said, not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? And then I will profess unto them, Depart from me, you workers of iniquity, for I never knew you. For everyone that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them shall be likened unto a wise man that built his house upon a rock. The rains descended, the floods came, the winds blew and beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. And everyone that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them not shall be likened unto a foolish man that built his house upon the sand. The rains descended, the floods came, the winds blew and beat upon that house, and it fell. 
and great was the fall of it. When the teachings of God are lost, we feel that God wants those teachings to be restored. Or said another way, God wants His people in our own day and time to start doing again what God told them to do in the first place. What He told them to do originally. There's a classic example of this over in Nehemiah chapter 8. We find the facts there that the world of Israel, the world of the Israelites collapsed about 586 B.C. That was when the armies of Babylon conquered Jerusalem. And those who survived the battle were carried away to Babylon to live in captivity. And they lived there in Babylonian captivity for the next 70 years. In Nehemiah chapter 8, we find the end of that period of captivity. Babylon was conquered by the Persians. And Babylon at that point became a footnote in history. And the people of God were allowed to return to Jerusalem. And they were allowed to rebuild the temple of God. It was an exciting time for God's people and Revival was sweeping the land and people were flocking to Jerusalem hungry for the Word of God. In Nehemiah chapter 8, Ezra the scribe is reading from the law of Moses. And as Ezra is reading from the law of Moses, the people are hanging on every word that he says. Actually, if you look and you read the first few verses of Nehemiah chapter 8... It says that Ezra started speaking early in the morning and continued until midday. That was several hours. Imagine that. And how fidgety folks get if a sermon lasts more than 25 minutes. Well, look at verses 13 and 14 of Nehemiah chapter 8. In verses 13 and 14 of Nehemiah chapter 8, Here's what it says. And on the second day were gathered together the chief of the fathers and all the people, the priests and the Levites, unto Ezra the scribe, even to understand the words of the law. And they found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded by Moses, that the children of Israel should dwell in booths in the feast of the seventh month. That's the feast known as the Feast of the Tabernacles. And they discovered in the law of Moses that God had commanded that they live in temporary booths or huts, actually, made of tree branches during this festival known as the Feast of the Tabernacles. If you skip down to verse 17, you see that they had not been doing this for almost ten centuries. They had not done this since the days of Joshua. And as you read the story, the reaction of the people is it's hard for people in our sophisticated 21st century to comprehend. As we would say, it's hard to get your head around it. Because when they discovered this, 
Apparently, no one in the group said, well, that's just no big deal. And no one said, well, we're observing the Feast of Tabernacles. That's what's really important. And no one said, well, if this hut thing was that significant, don't you think folks would have been doing it for the last thousand years? And nobody said, well, I mean, since nobody's been doing it for a thousand years, that ought to tell us not to sweat the details. And evidently, there was no one in the group that said, listen, before we rush into this hut thing, we need to ask, is this really a salvation issue? And apparently there was no one who chimed in and said, hey, let's not get all legalistic about this. The fact is, as you read the story of that happens there in Nehemiah 8, the people of God in that far off day, they were committed to obeying God. And they decided to get started building those temporary huts. I'm going to read from Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 15, 16, and 17. I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version. And that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out into the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts, in the courts of the house of God, and in the square at the water gate, in the square at the gate of Ephraim, and all the assembly of those who had returned from captivity made booths and lived in booths. For from the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, to the day the people of Israel, to that day, the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. You see, that's an example of restoration. That's an example of going back and doing things the way God had originally commanded it. There's another example in 2 Samuel where David was moving the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. But we won't go into that story this morning because if I tried to preach from early morning till midday, probably the person running the sound system wouldn't even stay. The point is, to us, restoration is important. Restoring God's original way of doing things. You see, the New Testament. The New Testament contains for us a general pattern of beliefs and practices. Beliefs and practices that God expects every local church to follow. Now that said, don't go home this afternoon and look through the index or look through the New Testament for the place where all the details of this pattern are neatly spelled out. Because there's no one particular place where they're all neatly laid out for us. The pattern is found in the overall body of teachings of the New Testament. But we believe 
The New Testament contains a general pattern for every local church to follow. And to be sure, the things we do and the reason we do them is because we're committed to do that and follow that pattern. We want to be just as close to the church of the first century as we possibly can and have a burning desire to conform to the pattern. You know what our prayer is? That other folks that want to follow Jesus would see that importance of conforming to the pattern. There's so much we want to cover in this series of lessons. So many things to talk about. The fact that we're not a sect as some have accused us of. That old saying, well, you, you folks think you're the only ones going to heaven. You know, in 65 years, I've never heard a preacher say that. only place I've ever heard that is out on the street. And we're going to talk about that in a later lesson. But the ultimate goal is to follow Jesus Christ. The ultimate goal is to make Jesus the Lord and Master of our lives. I've said this a thousand times, and this will make a thousand and one. If Jesus is not Lord and Master of all of your life, He's not Lord and Master at all in your life. And you know, the New Testament has a pattern for that too. And part of that comes from Acts chapter 2. When Jesus told Peter, He said, Upon this rock I'll build my church, and I'm going to give to you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatsoever you'll bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. What you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. He gave Peter the authority to preach that first sermon on Pentecost. And Peter stood up and preached that day in Acts chapter 2 to a vast audience in Jerusalem. And he got to the end of that sermon and they were pricked in their hearts, the King James says. They were touched deeply. They were moved. They said, he had said to them, he took them right in the eye and he said, This same Jesus you crucified, God made both Lord and Christ. They said, What shall we do? Peter said, Repent be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. And we're told they that gladly received His word were baptized and 3,000 souls were added that day. That's the first step in following Jesus Christ and making Him Lord and Master of your life. And if you've never done that, I wish you would. I'd pray that you would. I'd hope that you would. But if you've taken that first step but you've been away from Jesus, make Him Lord of your life. If there are changes that need to be made in your life, if there's something that needs to be done to make Jesus the Lord and Master of all of your life, we beg you to do it as we stand while we sing.